Welcome everyone to a special News Deeply discussion forum on women and the politics of peace building, broadcasting live today from the Irish Permanent Mission to the United Nations. Thank you to Ambassador Geraldine Bernason and the whole team here at the Irish Mission for having us. Here at the mission, we're joined by representatives from Mexico, the African Union, Lebanon, France, Norway, Sweden, the Russian Federation, the Czech Republic, the USA, India, Finland, and the UK. And welcome also to several hundreds of participants joining online from around the world. We know many of you are diplomats, academics, and representatives of organizations engaged in peace-building work on the ground all around the world. We're so glad to have all of you with us. I'm gonna start with some scene setting. All of us here across sectors want to see progress on Security Council Resolution 1325, its implementation and uptake around the world. We want to see the increased participation of women at all levels of peace and security efforts, better protection of women and girls from gender-based violence. These aren't theoretical issues. They shape the lives of women on the ground. The lack of female participation in peace talks has practical consequences. It perpetuates conflict, prevents their speedy resolution, and reduces the chance of true and lasting stability. Many of you know the statistics cited in a 2016 report by the Council on Foreign Relations, negotiations that incorporate female participation are significantly more likely to succeed, and the agreements that are forged are 35% more likely to last for at least 15 years. To quote from that report, women's participation increases the likelihood of an agreement because women often take a collaborative approach to peacemaking and organize across cultural and sectarian divides. That increases the prospects of long-term stability and reduces the likelihood of state failure, conflict onset, and poverty. In-depth interviews with negotiators from the Burundi, Northern Ireland, and South African peace processes found that the ability of female representatives to build trust, communicate, involve all sides, and settle disputes encouraged parties to negotiate and compromise. So when we don't have women at the table, when we falter in the implementation of 1325, it's a holdup for the peace building process, which in turn holds up every other development goal. So at the moment, it is just that, a holdup. As one researcher wrote for our website, News Deeply, while women are active and successful mediators at the grassroots level, they remain largely, largely invisible in international peacemaking. That same report by the Council on Foreign Relations found that women made up just 2% of chief mediators and just 9% of all negotiators. Participation at high-level peace talks is basically the composition of who's at the table is often shaped by warring factions. They generate the violence and they largely get to decide who sits at the table to end it. That often categorically leaves out half of their country's populations from having a voice and reduces the leverage of civil society in forging peace and even holding fighters accountable to any peace that is forged. Despite the local role that women play in preventing conflict and resolving conflict, they receive just 0.4% of the aid to fragile states from major donor countries in 2012 to 2013. We've seen new efforts by donor countries and UN officials and special envoys, as in the context of the Syria and Yemen talks, which we'll hear about later in the conversation, to create women's advisory groups, to create the space for greater women's participation in peace processes. It's a start, and it's also a sign that it may take some creative measures to solve this problem and to break through the status quo. Our main speakers today have a wealth of experience to share on this topic. Her Excellency Ambassador Geraldine Bernason 
Ireland's permanent representative to the United Nations and the chair of the Commission of, on the Status of Women. His Excellency Ambassador Lang Yabo, permanent representative of the Gambia to the United States. Mavic Cabrera Beleza, founder and CEO of the Global Network of Women Peacebuilders. And joining us on the phone remotely from Cairo, Dr. Bilkis Abuospa, Assistant Professor of Political Science and Gender at Sana'a University and head of the Awam Foundation for Development and Culture. Dr. Bilkis has been working with the UN Special Envoy for Yemen, Martin Griffiths, to build a coalition of Yemeni women for security and peace. This is an interactive discussion. We will be in conversation with our main speakers and later in the program, we'll work in your questions that you've sent in over the past few days. If you'd like to raise a new question, simply raise your hand if you're here in the room or if you're listening online, simply tweet us with at News Deeply. Ambassador Byrne-Nason, let's start with you. Engaging women in peace building is an issue dear to your heart and vital to Ireland from its own experience just a few decades ago. What was learned from that experience in terms of the role women played in the run-up to and in the implementation of the Good Friday Accords? Well, actually, thank you, Lara. The, you, in the introduction, uh, said that the involvement of women in peace processes makes them more sustainable globally. I can tell you that in our experience, the involvement of women in the Irish peace process was really a sign of the moment that things started to happen, the moment that we think our peace process began to be bedded down. You spoke about creative measures. If I go back to 1998, so 21 years ago, a group of 150 cross-community women, and that was already a special consideration, so cross-community women in Northern Ireland in a very hostile environment came together six weeks ahead of an election at local government and decided to form the Women's Coalition uh, Group. Uh, they uh, essentially became the anchor, the hub for women's involvement in a peace process that now, happily for Ireland, is 21 years old and still um, proving to be a sustainable peace process. They were grassroots women. And the interesting thing about their engagement was that through that 150 women in one room, six weeks ahead of election, they managed to have two women elected uh, who then found a place, were able to find a place at the table of the negotiations. So something we've never forgotten is the notion that women need uh, assistance to have access. So they had the access through the democratic process. By basically creating a whole new they political party. They created their own mini political party uh, and were, as the phrase goes, mood and booed when they came to the table because it was a long time before Resolution 1325 was agreed. So mm -hmm. at one level, you could say they were partly an inspiration for that evolution. But what they brought to the table, to the peace process, frankly, was different when they came to the table. I think it's important if I highlight a couple of those, which are that they argued for language in the peace uh, agreement that would refer to victims and reconciliation, two concepts that actually hadn't entered the lexicon of the peace negotiation at all. They argued that attention be given to integrated schooling, to cross-community housing, to bringing schooling and housing together, to bring a whole dimension of the negotiation around the peace agreement, to focus on youth and engaging, particularly young uh, radical, as they were youth in a conflict situation at the time. None of those issues were considered as part of the valid framing of the agreement until women came to the table. 
So although they had a, a challenge in actually getting there, once there, they raised the kind of issues that are now still uh, part of the great legacy of a successful peace process. So I think a second point I'd make before I conclude, you'll want to move on, I know, is that they weren't a token uh, presence at the table. And I think after now decades of our own peace process, watching the most translated UN resolution ever, 1325, find its way uh, within the UN system in many governments, what we need to emphasize is that you don't add women and stir it and hope something comes out at the other end. What we want to see is a meaningful participation for women. I think that's probably one of the reasons we wanted so many of you to come here today, that we need to take that next step. Remarkably, those women in Northern Ireland managed to do that um, over two decades ago, but we're still learning how to be successful otherwise. But they were a remarkable group of women who are there to share their experience to this day. They've been here in this room with peacemakers, women from Syria and Colombia sharing that experience. And that's part of the, the inspiration for how we're at the table today. Mavic, you work across country contexts, but then also very deeply in the Philippines where you're from on peace building right. efforts. We've now seen these sort of luminous case studies of how women make a difference in Colombia, in Liberia, in the Gambia, in Ireland. So what are you seeing sort of systemically on, on how women's participation is shifting and what difference it can make on the ground? At, uh, at the local level, as you've mentioned, women are very present and very much recognized. Um, but our challenge is that um, their presence at the local level in formal peace processes do not translate to formal and official peace processes. They disappear when it becomes formal and official because the decision makers over the formal peace processes do not recognize women's expertise. And it's often undervalued and uh, not getting... Um, enough support. But um, we, we need to work harder in connecting the local, the informal, to the formal and official. And as we know, um, we've had so many challenges with uh, formal peace processes. Uh, to begin with, the framework for these processes. It's often a two-sided table. Uh, and the premium is on those who are waging the war rather than those who are waging the peace. I remember a very specific experience in the Philippines when local women's organizations were lobbying to be heard in the formal peace process. And one of the key questions that, or first questions that they were asked them was, did you carry guns? Did you carry guns? Meaning, were you uh, either a member of the military or the rebel groups? If not, you well, um, short of saying, if not, you don't have a space uh, on the table. So the premium is, again, repeating myself, is on those who are waging the, uh, the war, not on those who are waging the peace. And while we often say that we need to influence the peace table, we also need to reshape the table from a two-sided table to a real round table where all those, everyone who are invested in the, in the peace process would have a space, an equal space. It's fascinating. We, we often think about it as the composition of peace talks, but the actual structure and so much of what we, we seem to be watching now with special envoys to Yemen, to Syria, are attempts to build new structures to plug in 
advisory groups and consultative groups. Anything that you see happening now that you think is, is really inspiring or, or shift in the right direction? Yes, I would like to uh, cite the uh, specific examples of Colombia and the Philippines. And as we know, the peace agreement with the, um, with the FARC or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia is one of the strongest in terms of uh, gender perspectives. And um, it has, you know, over 100 specific provisions uh, on, on women and gender, including the LGBTQ community. And that did not happen out of the blue. It happened because of consistent and sustained participation of local women's rights organizations. And here I would uh, credit UN Women for supporting the summit uh, in, uh, in, you know, uh, at the middle of the peace process, ensuring that women across the country, and as you know, for those who are following Colombia closely, it's a very uh, divided country because of the history of conflict and the different ideologies. But the summit, the peace process itself, um, uh, allowed them or, or, or facilitated a process so that they would come together and agree on the bottom line. One, they want this process to be concluded because they've seen that there have been many peace processes in Colombia that did not conclude. The, the rebel groups were just abandoning the peace table. Uh, so the And this was the influence of the women involved or, or sort of in parallel? Uh, you mean the, the, the non-conclusion of the No, peace? no, the, the fact that it was so different this time. Oh, yes, of course, a big credit to women's rights organizations and, and uh, the formation of the gender subcommission uh, in the peace process is, is one of the key achievements of the, uh, um, of the peace process and the agreement in Colombia. But um, fast forward, we also know that it doesn't end, you know, with the signing of the peace agreement. We know that more than half of the peace agreements are violated even literally before the ink that was signed, that was used to sign them has dried. And South Sudan is, is a concrete example. Now the biggest challenge in Colombia is how do you actually implement this peace agreement? And I think I can say, I mean, being a civil society representative, that there's a very conservative uh, government at the moment, which, you know, makes it a very uncertain whether, you know, there would be a full support for the implementation of the peace agreement. Uh, in so, the Philippines, it's a shining example of women's representation in peace agreement, as we know, as peace process and the peace agreement. And as you know, uh, the peace process with the more Islamic Liberation Front, the government peace panel was chaired by a woman, uh, Miriam Coronel Ferrer, and before that, even the peace panel with the Communist Party of the Philippines was also chaired by a woman. So there's, and, and these women are very much connected to civil society. Dr. Bilkis, can you hear me well? Yes, I hear you, yes. Great. Can you share with us a bit about your involvement in the Yemeni peace process in Sweden and in the years before? How did you first get involved with the Special Envoy's work? Mm -hmm. um, uh, thank you very much. Thank you for, be, for having me in this uh, important event to share the Yemeni experience. Um, at the beginning after the war, um, in 2014, after the war, the UN women invite 15 women to meet in uh, Cyprus. They invite women from 
all the parties in Yemen from the different sides, from the political parties, from the entities to come together to uh, to talk and to share how can uh, how can uh, the woman be part of the uh, negotiation or of the uh, peace process at the end of this at the end of this conference uh, the woman to yani take a uh, uh, a decision to be part of the uh, political process and to play a big role to get uh, peace to uh, Yemen. This is the first step for the Yemeni uh, woman in 2015. After that, there is a mini round uh, table of negotiation. There is three round table of negotiation in Geneva one and Pale and in Kuwait and uh, the end one now uh, in Sweden in on see in this uh, in this uh, round table uh, yani the, the participate of women in this round table is limited there is one woman in the first uh, round table and at the end there is one woman in the uh, sweden uh, now with the government side uh, yani there is uh, only one uh, woman about you were telling me, Dr. Bilkis, just to share a bit with the group, before today's event, you and I had a conversation about this, and you were sharing with me a little mm -hmm. bit about how that happened and why that happened, that the government brought one female member of their delegation and the Houthi rebels brought none. And you actually asked them about it, why they didn't bring women. What did they say? Mm -hmm. uh, when I asked when we go to when we went to Sweden and we didn't see uh, we didn't saw women in the in the delegation it's only women from the government side when I asked the Al Houthi side why uh, they didn't get women with him uh, they said uh, maybe we are afraid because we don't know if we can come back to Sana or no and because it's a woman, we are afraid to stay out of uh, Yemen long time, and maybe this will uh, make a very problem for for her. But uh, it's it's not a, a real uh, problem. And I talked to to him. If you uh, if you get a woman with you, I'll uh, get it to stay with me in Egypt before any if, if there is uh, anything happen. But I think there is a preventing to, um, uh, to prevent women to be part in the negotiation or to be part in the political process. Till now, the people or the men in Yemen prevent women to be part of uh, this thing. The two parties, two conflict, prevent the women to be part of the delegations uh, in the uh, round table. And about that, we work it very much how can we involve the woman? We wrote a letter to the uh, president, to the uh, prime minister in the uh, govern government uh, side, and we wrote a letter to the authority inside Sana'a al-Houthi and the GBC uh, parties because they are the, uh, they, they are the authority uh, inside Sana'a to add women in the new, new, new negotiation. And they promised us, but we will see if it is okay or no. But we work it now very hard. How can we involve many women and how can we uh, learn many women in the local area uh, to be uh, good in, uh, in uh, negotiation in uh, many things to solve the problems because in the local area, the women do a lot of things, a lot of good things in the local uh, area, and no one hear about it. And 
uh, know the delegations of the two parties to conflict care about what uh, women did in the uh, local uh, area. Now, you told me that you think there needs to be more international pressure on warring parties, frankly, to include women, to, to change yes. the composition of who they bring. What do you think that yes. pressure needs to look like? Uh, I think I think it's it's very important to 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 the uh, international community uh, to pressure the two parties to delegation to add women uh, with them. Um, the, the good step now, uh, the special envoy uh, start to uh, forma uh, formation uh, um, advisory group, women advisory group. I am one of this uh, uh, group to uh, give him advance or to uh, talk with him for the many issues, not only women issues. But we want uh, women to talk, especially within women issues. We want women to be part to, in the uh, negotiation. And I think the international community can play a big role because they have a good relation between uh, them and the two sides of the uh, delegation. And I think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's very important to pressure them or pressing them to get the woman uh, in, the, uh, in the negotiation. Without pressure for the international community, I think we didn't want anything. I think they can do many things to, uh, to this thing because the UN Resolution 1325 said is uh, very important to add women in this agreement and the outcome of the national dialogue who's the original dialogue at 30 percent in all the decision making we're, Dr. Bukis, we're losing you a little bit but it just reminds us to appreciate how special it is that you're joining us from Cairo with all these insights there were two things you told me yesterday that really stood out one was that the Houthi rebels didn't seem to know about 1325. The government did, and it was like, yeah, yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. We brought one this time. We'll, we'll get there. Um, you know, these, these are mindset changes that happen over time. And that, as you were saying, you know, you're, you're, the special envoy gets guidance from this advisory group on economics, on local livelihoods, on airports, yeah. things that, uh, things, it turns out women know about a lot of other things, too, that, <laughs> that can be useful in the process. Um, I'd love to turn to Ambassador Yabo on the experience from the Gambia, both in terms of your own uh, country's planning, a 10-year plan to implement 1325 that took, took effect in 2010, so you're now several years into it. Can you tell us a bit about that plan, how it was adopted, and what it contains? Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Laura. To start with, uh, Gambia's case is a bit different from the rest of uh, the countries or the rest of experiences that have been narrated simply because um, we have, uh, we thank God we have never um, experienced a major conflict since 1981. But in spite of this, Gambia lives within a sub-region which uh, is prone to conflicts, which has witnessed conflict over the last uh, 10 or 15 years. Um, as a result, we are also very mindful that um, since we live within that sub-region, we cannot say we are immune. And since the coming into force of Resolution 1325, as a government, as a country, government has taken a conscious decision to implement Resolution 1325. 
simply because women have been the backbone of Gambia's economy. Women have been the backbone of Gambia's sustenance as a country. And then to do that, the Ministry of Women's Affairs enacted or proposed a law to have a women's act. And then after this act, a women's uh, a national action plan to implement Resolution 1325 was also tabled before parliament and it was approved. Now, the main pillars of this um, national plan are three, prevention, protection, and participation. Simply because we need to make sure that women participate in decision-making so that they are on the table. To do that, they need protection. And then above all, we must prevent them from abuse. Again, as a government, we have um, enacted certain laws like the Women's Act, Child's Marriage Act, Anti-FGM Act, all meant to make sure that we implement Resolution 1325. Coming back to the role of women in peace in the Gambia, as you may know, we have not uh, experienced violent conflict, but Gambia has gone through 22 years of dictatorship. This was a very difficult for the country. Silently, we suffered like any other conflict zone. During this process, Gambian women have never been behind. They were there in the forefront in the struggle to end dictatorship peacefully in the Gambia as peace builders. In fact, there are women organizations that came purposely, NGOs, to sensitize people on their constitutional rights. And then this and other efforts put together help us to end dictatorship in the Gambia. So in 2016, you had a transition. Yes. A um, peaceful transition of power after 22 years of dictatorship. And you credit women with the fact that the transition stayed peaceful because it, it really started teetering. So what role did they play in that stability? Yeah, this can be seen from the fact that um, in the Gambian context, peace starts with women because they are the ones who bring us up in our families. And they are able to instill a culture of peace in us from childhood. The transition was difficult because uh, the former president wanted to take the country to war. But the resilient nature of Gambians, because of our upbringing by our good mothers, make us exercise restraint until when international help arrived. I was saying um, women were all along in the forefront because the period leading to the impasse, the impasse was after the election, but there were a series of events that happened. For example, we heard about the Kalama Revolution, spearheaded by prominent Gambian women. Some of them have even retired. But when there was massive abuse of people's rights in the country, these women groups organized themselves. There was an incident in which an opposition member was uh, killed by the government, and his fellow colleagues came out to ask for his body. The entire leadership of that opposition party was arrested. It was the women who were in the forefront. Protesting. Protesting. They call it uh, the Kalama Revolution. And also they had the Broom Revolution, where they came with a broom to symbolize that they are going to sweep the, 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 the dictatorship, which they did. And then uh, we have also seen a lot of women setting up um, media houses to sensitize people on the need to vote this government out. Most importantly also, 
the female lawyers in the country, over the years, because of a massive abuse of the system, have come out with what is called the Female Lawyers Association of the Gambia. And they use this association to provide free legal service to women. I think these are things that uh, Gambian people remain grateful for. Because uh, without the women, I'm sure I would not have been sitting here today to be expressing my views openly. Because this was a difficult period when, even as diplomats serving a government, you choose what to say when you are invited. It's really something. I was reading how, as the government, as the last government was reluctant to leave, they really started to try to play the politics as an ethnic dimension and try to rile up one ethnicity versus another. And you see really women playing the role in the resilience of pushing back against that. I mean, how did, did how do you keep that sort of talk from picking up steam? Yes, you see, like as I said, everything starts from the family. In the Gambia, we intermarry a lot. The government was there dividing and ruling like any other dictatorship does everywhere in the world. But because there are a lot of uh, intermarriages in the, in the country, women marry across tribes, across religion. So it was very, very difficult for the former regime to achieve its aim of uh, trying to bring in conflict among tribes. So we uh, definitely we have credited, all credit goes to the Gambian women. You know, we started looking into this after learning more about the Gambia that same Council on Foreign Relations report that I mentioned earlier uh, cited this case study of women's situation rooms, innovative real-time groups of women convened around election cycles to anticipate and combat violence that could pop up during elections, and that they've been employed quite successfully in Kenya, Liberia, Nigeria, and Senegal. So this idea that there's a sensitivity and a sort of resilience that can come from that sort of mobilization really picking up steam. Mavic, are you seeing this elsewhere? What, what does it really spark for you? You mean the situation yeah. room specifically? Yes, in, in all of the countries that you've mentioned and uh, Sierra Leone, Uganda, and um, we're now also thinking of organizing a similar initiative in the Philippines because of the forthcoming elections in May. And it's really when women are seen as high influencers and not just, you know, token in the periphery of uh, peace and political processes that they are able to, to show uh, not just uh, the local communities how, how things or, or politics can change and how um, governance could be transformed. Uh, and it it's really nothing less than revolutionary when women are recognized as high influencers and uh, decision makers. And you were mentioning uh, 1325 and um, the good ambassador sharing how important the national action plan is. I would like to emphasize that it's universal now. Even there are 80 national action plans, but more countries are using 1325, especially women's rights organizations, as a mobilizing and organizing instrument, um, not just on peace process, but uh, broadly on uh, political issues, uh, constitutional building, governance. And I've never seen a much more important instrument than 1325 um, 
in addition to the Beijing Platform for Action and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. And here, I want to recognize that this is coming from the ownership, the ownership and, and uh, the origin of this resolution. And it's, it's really different from all other international policies um, adopted and international laws um, adopted by the UN. Um, it originated from the efforts of decades uh, or centuries of efforts of women's rights activists and peace activists. And I would like to acknowledge within, you know, in the room, uh, we have one of the drafters of Resolution 1325, uh, Koro President of Hague Appeal for Peace. So, yeah. It's a, it's, we're really honored by the company we keep here today. Um, Ambassador Byrne Nason, I want to talk about culture, which, which has come up a few times today and in the past few days in conversation. Looking back to Ireland on its road to peace with its own conservative social structures that women had to work through and past to create space, to play that sort of fearless role. Uh, mentioned sort of starts with influence in the family home and then breaks through to the political arena. Any reflections on how even in sort of conservative cultures and structures, women sort of find a way? Well, I think the the Ireland that we knew back then, you described as conservative, is is almost now um, a memory because, of course, we have emerged as a as a very progressive, dynamic society. But I think there was a big moment in Ireland in terms of women's participation in public life that changed us and changed us forever. Um, and Mary Robinson uh, was elected as the first president of Ireland, the first female president of Ireland. And she used a phrase uh, which I think uh, encapsulates where we moved on from, which was to recognize that the hand that rocks the cradle can rock the system. And I think that's what she herself in her own persona literally did. And I think that that issue of engaging women in public life just suddenly overnight with her election made everyone look differently. We haven't been that successful in Ireland even to date in having a very high number of parliamentarians. But what we have done through Mary's election and then the trickle-down effect of seeing a woman in such an important role is to push for the inclusion of women in public life in general. Um, we have a very good representation of women at local level, which is where the Women's Coalition in Northern Ireland emerged from, a grassroots level political engagement. Um, interestingly, I was just checking as we were speaking, the women who came to the peace uh, negotiations insisted that there be a provision in the peace agreement for the inclusion of women in public life. So in Ireland, we had, uh, at the one hand, a very explosive moment when Mary emerged on the stage as Ireland's first female president. But then we've knitted it in. And as we're speaking here today, in Dublin, we have a big consultation, public consultation underway for what is our third national action plan on resolution 1325 we're working with civic fora we're working with civil society so we're trying to bring the top and the bottom together in a way to ensure that there's a critical threshold of female voices female engagement but if you were to ask me for one moment when it looked like women had something to say about the future of my country it was when we elected mary robinson ambassador yabo you were telling me that in terms of culture change mindset change you actually hope that women in the Gambia will be more sensitized to the power that they have. Like perhaps they're even stronger than they realize. Yes, um, thank you very much. As I said, uh, for me, 
everything starts with women. And in the Gambia, the power of women, especially in this new dispensation, is very obvious now. Because as you may know, immediately after the impasse, government has set up uh, some mechanisms to embark on peace building in the country. This includes institutional reforms. This is where we are seeing more Gambian women now asserting their influence. And this includes having a new constitution, reviewing the constitution of the country, and then also embarking on a security sector reform. Then again, we have the TRRC, which is Truth, um, Reconciliation, Reparation Commission. In all this, you cannot implement them without a cultural dimension. So you see here, that's where the issue of women and the power that they have. Like, we come from a society which is not conservative that much, but again, we tend to listen to our mothers. So they have a key role to play. And then the examples I mentioned before, when women came out, sort of the population that there is a need to move the country, there is a need to end what is happening now. I think it's enough uh, justification to say that whatever women take leadership in, in the Gambia today will be a success. Let's just start with one question from the web. These have all been sort of pouring in in the past 24 hours. Which women should be at the table? The leaders, the skilled negotiators, the affected, if, or, or if all of them? How do you decide who? The question came in from one of our uh, online listeners. Mavic, what do you think? How do you square that away? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's hard to uh, answer sometimes. Um, I come from a country that where we've had two female presidents, uh, Corazon Aquino and Gloria Macapagal-Arroyo, and arguably women's situation was worse during their terms, but sometimes, so it, it, it's sometimes it's hard to defend our advocacy for women's participation. But I always say that they don't necessarily represent women's rights organizations or the women's movement. So who is the right woman? Um, one who has connection or very well connected to the local context. One who has a track record of working with civil society, if not from civil society herself. Uh, one who has a track record of um, standing for feminist values. And I would, I, I would emphasize track record rather than commitment because easily, especially politicians can say, oh, I am committed to gender equality, women's rights. Anyone can easily say commitment. We want to see track record. Uh, so, um, and, and a woman who, does not have, you know, a shade of being, you know, involved in any uh, uh, cases of corruption. So those are the kind of uh, women. And I think we also, as women's rights activists, as feminists, we need to translate our movement into currency, into electoral currency. We're very strong as a movement, but has that really translated into power of the vote? It's very debatable. We have yet to see that. I'd like to ask Dr. Bilkis the, the same question. You have to make these difficult decisions of how to 
ensure representation from women across Yemen in these small spaces that are being created now. Anything you've learned or insights on what, what kind of women do you need to make sure are at the table? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I agree with the ambassadors about the woman who will be on the uh, round table. But uh, all the time, we want to the woman to be a superwoman, to be part of the negotiation or uh, uh, political process. We didn't ask what the kind of men we want them to be part of the negotiation. <laughs> As a Yemeni, in, in, in Yemen, um, in Kuwait, when we, uh, the UN to deliver a message to the uh, delegations and to the international community about women and um, another things. They asked all of them, who's this woman? They know us very much and we are friends. We work all the time uh, together. And when they saw us in the uh, negotiation, uh, they asked who's this woman? Uh, what, what can they do? And many things they, uh, they said. And I think we want women, um, a good woman to be part of the negotiation, it is, uh, it's okay. But we want uh, the, the woman to be effective. How can to choose the effective woman in the negotiation? Very, very good point. Anything you'd like to weigh in on on that, ambassadors, before we move on? Well, I think personally for me, um, as my colleague said, it's a difficult question to answer because uh, what criteria will you use? I think it depends on the situation. For me, I think uh, women that should be on the table should have certain criteria. And number one is integrity, because I think that is very, very important. And there should be people with experience in governance and also dealing with different sectors. And I'm saying this because I remember during the political impasse in the Gambia, a lot of things happen. Personally, I was involved with a group of like-minded people trying to organize some people for a demonstration to show the former president that he need to step down. But it was very difficult. Again, it comes to the important role of women. When we had our first meeting, we want somebody to lead it. But we start thinking it must be a woman. So getting that woman of the right caliber was very, very difficult. And then in the process, we couldn't achieve much. But thank God, as I said, international help came and then uh, we emerged from, from, from the situation. But basically, I think integrity is very, very important because people must trust you. People must know that you have a clean record and people must know that you don't have an agenda. Interesting point on that. The CFR report, which I clearly enjoyed a great deal since I keep mentioning it, actually talked about how women are quite often and even systemically seen as more trustworthy precisely because they are often excluded from power structures and rebel groups. Uh, I thought that was an interesting point uh, because they're, they're locked out in the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I fully agree with everything the other speakers have said. I would also add, it has to be a woman who knows the community and knows her way around the, the conflict zone, to be very frank. One of the issues that came up with women in Northern Ireland, uh, I said that they insisted on integrated schooling, integrated housing. These women who came to the table were women who knew how far they had to walk around an area with their children to a safe school. They knew where the, the pockets of resistance, the pockets of risk were. I've heard Mary Robinson, it's not just in Northern Ireland, I've heard Mary Robinson speak 
of the Sahel region where she was present in conflict zones. Very often it was women who chose safe areas for washing clothes along the river who knew the rebel movements. They knew what was happening on the ground. So I think it's extremely important to have integrity, to be credible, to have a track record, but also to know what you're talking about. And so you need to know your people and know your region. That's why I think grassroots women have a really important role to play in this as well as elected representatives. Combination, I'm gonna just put these two questions together. What training, mentoring, and continual development takes place to enhance the skills of women to negotiate and to mediate? How do you succession plan for it? How do you set up systems to enable the skills needed so that when conflict does erupt, you're not starting from scratch? Mavic, that seems tailor-made for you. We, we need to listen to uh, women in local communities that are directly affected by conflict and listen to women's rights activists or even female political leaders uh, that, are, that have developed their expertise on, on the peace process and, and the related, um, related issues. And, and, and always you know, ensure that those are combined. Uh, we often, there, there have been a number of efforts where, you know, um, to build the capacity of women to uh, participate in peace negotiations. And it's usually, you know, understanding how ceasefire agreements are, are um, yeah, are adopted, how they are monitored, how the different uh, issues have been identified by the uh, principal peace negotiators. But the technique and strategies also vary from one context to another because uh, there's no, you know, um, we keep saying there's no one size fits all and um, approach to this and, and the, the conflict can vary, not only varies from one country to another, in sometimes within different regions in the same country. Um, I, rec I remember um, having a conversation with the Afghan Women's Network and uh, their um, executive uh, director was chosen to participate uh, in the High Peace Council. So we were discussing how can we support, how can we contribute to enhancing your capacity. So in our minds, we're thinking about uh, negotiation, actual negotiation, the, the ceasefire and um, um, trucks 1.5 or 2. And then they said, understanding religion, understanding Islam. And we were like, oh, they, most of them, you know, were born and raised as Muslims. So uh, this um, friend of ours from the Afghan Women's Network who's in the High Peace Council, she said she was in the pre-talks with the Taliban. And she said all the time the Taliban leaders were reciting the Quran. And she said, I, I read the Quran. I, you know, I, I was raised reading it but I couldn't argue with the Taliban the way they do, the way they use the religion. So the kind of support that we need is if you can 
put us in touch with um, Islamic experts mm -hmm. so that we can argue, you know, yeah. each time the Taliban is quoting the so Quran in our peace talks. Locally tailored yeah, capacity. Yeah, really building. locally tailored and, and working closely with, with local women's organizations and those who are representing them in the peace process. I should say one of the participants on the conference line, Karma Ekmechi at the Foundation for Opportunity, who was a longtime UN staffer, mm -hmm. is actually incubating a digital platform, Diplo Women, to build networks and pipelines mm -hmm. of this. So it sounds like an interesting thing to follow and, uh, and perhaps connect you two to, to think about it. So one question to the group on how to bridge the local grassroots role of women with policy. And second question to the Irish ambassador on how Ireland on Security Council would advance women in peace building and security. Let's start with the latter and then broaden back out. Well, thank you, uh, Fatima. I mean, I, as we both know, um, more than 60% of the agenda of the Security Council deals with conflict ridden uh, parts of, of the globe where we're, because we're having this conversation today, we believe women have a capacity to improve uh, prospects for, not just for peacemaking and peace building, but for sustainable peace, which is what the, uh, the, uh, the elusive factor seems to be. And so uh, we will absolutely be one of the most strident voices, I think I can say to you. Um, our own experience of conflict and the, the way in which it bruised and fractured our own country is still very alive. And one thing that we've realized uh, in the role of women and their role in peace and security is that it's an ongoing investment that needs to be made. And so as we sit, hopefully, uh, on the Security Council, we would want to ensure that it's not just a once-off initiative that's taken in relation to a conflict here or adding a woman here or there and stirring as an Irish academic like to say, but that this will become an integral part of every discussion we have on the council about conflict, because it's, there's no point, very frankly, in having once a year a thematic discussion about women and then deciding, well, we'll come back to that again next year when we've solved all of the rest of the crisis. This is a fundamental, I think, as we've heard very eloquently from Gambia, um, uh, from our colleague, you can see how women's engagement in the prevention part is critical actually, as we saw in Northern Ireland, activating women at the key junctures when there is a potential peace moment, but then having them integrated into the political life thereafter is the critical sustainable part that we want to look at. So I can, you can take it that you will see women, peace and security writ large in absolutely everything Ireland would do as a Security Council member, as long as people have the confidence in us to do that. And it would be a woman's voice, you'll hear. Uh, <laughs> it would be me. And those of you who know me know that it will be very hard not to hear my voice uh, once <laughs> at the table. Ambassador, any thoughts on bridging the local and the... Yes, um, thank you very much. I think for me, we can do a lot to bridge the gap. But uh, everything starts from leadership, a conscious leadership that is committed to the whole issue. And coupled with that, people must take ownership, local ownership of the initiative, because quite often we tend to assume that we know we can decide for others what is good for them. And I think this has uh, partly contributed to a lot of issues or a lot of initiatives not achieving what it should have achieved. Um, coupled with that, the grassroots must be given the opportunity to know 
what they want, to tell us what they want, and then we form policies based on their needs. To close out here, we have just two minutes. I'd love to turn back to Ambassador Bernason for thoughts on where we go next. What needs to happen to really um, accelerate the uptake, the implementation, and some of the things we hope to see out of the life of 1325? Well, I think we've heard some very good uh, examples today of how to get there. I'm very impressed by the speaker who spoke in favor of um, evaluating and monitoring what we're doing on the ground, because I think uh, 1325 now, uh, it's been with us um, uh, at the Security Council, in the General Assembly, in our speeches. It's a rhetorical device at times. We want to see it being actually delivered on the ground. And I think the examples that we've had, particularly looking to Lang from the Gambia, where in fact the action plan was developed as part of the new shaping of your country in a way, um, it means that we put it at the heart of everything we do. And I think those of us who are here, uh, who are committed, who will be sitting in the CSW, making sure that the role of women in the, in the norm setting environment is reinforced and grown. And then those of us who aspire to being Security Council members, as I said earlier, committing not just to having this as an annual debate about women, peace and security, but having it at the core of everything, of what I like to call our angle of entry to earth. The idea that you can actually shape the future of a country um, or in a context like Yemen, where there have been decades of conflict, starvation, uh, both humanitarian and developmental crises, and not have women at the table just seem, should be inconceivable. So I hope that we can leave today with lots of inspiration from people who know uh, what they're talking about. And Mavic and Lang, thank you very much. Doctor, uh, in, uh, in Cairo, we know that we, you came and you went a little bit. But as I said to you at the beginning, we're so appreciative for you taking the time. What you are doing now is a real life example of what we all aspire to. It's 100 years ago since Ireland, Irish women won the vote. And last year we celebrated that with an Irish commission and a poem from uh, our foremost female poet. And she entitled that poem, launched here on the steps of the UN, as our future will become the past of other women. And so that's my parting uh, thought for you in that traditional Irish literary way. Let our future become the past of other women. Bravo. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador Geraldine Bernason, Ambassador Long Yabo from The Gambia, Mavic Cabrera-Beleza, and Dr. Bilkis Abuospa for joining us today. <laughs>